My name is Henry Michael. I'm the pastor over student ministries. And before we get started, I'm going to address the elephant in the room. Yes, I do, in fact, know that I have a mustache. And um, a lot of people have been going up to different staff members. And they're like, what's up with that? Why does he got a mustache? And did he lose a bet? And uh, I did, in fact, lose a bet. But the bet is over. I've already paid my bet, okay? Now I choose this. And I like it. And my wife likes it. And my kids think it's funny. So um, those are the only people that matter. So I'm going to keep it. Um, I also have very few hair options, hair choice options. And so uh, I've been told without any facial hair, I look like Voldemort. So I'm going to keep at least something on my face. Um, anyways, um, I'm going to show you a picture of my son, Hank. Uh, this is Hank. Uh, he's got a new obsession with worms lately. We're, we've been digging up our yard and uh, finding some old stuff in our yard, and we're just getting it out and trying to make our yard look as good as we can possibly make it. And uh, so he's been finding these worms. But he's had these, this new uh, thing that he's been saying to me. And he's, he says, you don't know that, Papa, about everything. And so one of the things that he does is he gets these worms, and he puts them in a Tupperware, and he carries the Tupperware wherever he goes. And by the end of the day, the worm is dead, like shriveled up and dead. And, uh, and he's like, he's like uh, and this is on like Monday, he's like, on Wednesday, I'm going to let this, this worm go and he can go live in, in the dirt again. And I'm like, he's dead. He's not, he's not going anywhere. I'm like, if you want him to live, you might want to add some dirt to, to the Tupperware. Maybe he'll live longer. And he goes, you don't know that, Papa. <laughs> okay. Um, he has a favorite cereal, and every time he inevitably eats all of his cereal by Wednesday, shopping is on Monday, he goes, I want the, this particular cereal. And I go, we're out of it. And he goes, you don't know that, Papa. I do know that. Um, <laughs> it's like, Mom is gone, running errands or hanging out with friends. Where's Mama? I want to see Mama. Like, she's gone. You don't know that, Papa. And so I finally got sick of this, okay, because apparently I don't know anything. And so I had a very uh, crucial parenting moment, and uh, maybe you can learn something from this. And so I looked at it, I go, buddy, you're three. I'm 34. I'm 31 years older than you. I'm almost 12 times your age. I have degrees. You haven't even started school yet. I've lived some life. And you are just starting. Didn't work. <laughs> and that's the reason why I don't teach parenting classes. <laughs> Hank doesn't like to feel helpless, but the fact is none of us like to feel helpless. None of us like to feel helpless. And, and the reason why I talk about this is as we've been on this journey, uh, this gospel journey back to God, we, we read in Romans, there are some times where we look at the human condition apart from God and it almost seems hopeless. We read in Romans 1, it's just, this is who we are without God. And it is dark. And it's messy. And we realize that we are helpless. And I could end the sermon right here because that's basically the entire sermon. But oftentimes when we hear that we are helpless, that we are sinners, we start making plans, fighting sin. And these are good things. Like sometimes when we hear this, we're like, okay, I'm convicted. I know I'm a sinner. And so I'm going to get an accountability partner. 
or I'm going to jump into this Bible study and I'm going to read this book because it's directly speaking to the sin in my life, or I'm going to commit to praying more, reading my Bible more, I'm going to maybe even serve more. And these are all really, really good things to do. And I would say, do those things. But sometimes... When we start doing more and more to combat sin in our lives, we start not relying on the God who, who has given us these, these things in community, in the Bible, in prayer. Instead, we start relying on them instead of God. God wants us not only to, to be helpless and rely on him, but know to our very core that we are helpless without him. And for a lot of us, that's a terrifying reality. It is a terrifying reality, especially in our culture where we know so much and we have so much technology and so many answers to so many things. It is terrifying to know that we are helpless. But the gospel journey is about redefining humanity. It's about changing and altering the course of our lives. And God is calling us to a helpless faith. And that helpless faith is a transformed heart. And that transformed heart leads to a new reality for the Christian faith. And as we're going to see today, we actually have an example to follow. But before we jump into scripture, let's pray and hear the word or the prayer of illumination, which is based on 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege we have to gather together to worship you, to encourage one another, and to hear from your word. Speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Teach us, correct us, and train us by your truth. Remind us that you equip and empower us to walk faithfully with you. Lord, I pray uh, as we are seemingly ending or nearing the end of this pandemic, I pray that you keep us safe, you keep us healthy, you you, uh, walk with us in the decisions that we make. We pray that this thing goes away, that we find effective effective uh, treatments and, and vaccines. And, and Lord, I just pray for everybody here who, who is uh, lonely or going through stuff because of this pandemic. I pray that you comfort them and walk with them. I pray for all of us as we hear that we are helpless, Lord, that we see that um, not as something that is merely terrifying, but something that is good and beautiful. I pray this in your name. Amen. Romans three twenty seven through 31. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works. No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the, the God of Jews only? Is, is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So in these five verses at the end of chapter three, Paul basically expands that in chapter four. So when when we're looking at our scriptures today, we're going to kind of jump back and forth between the end of chapter three and chapter four. Um, But when we're talking about this gospel journey, we're going to start with the need for a transformed heart. 
So when we read this section of scripture, we're going to hone in on one verse. Uh, we're going to read more, but we're going to hone in on one verse, and that's verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, where it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so this is, as we're going to see, it goes beyond just believing in God to a transformed heart that believes God. So let's jump into uh, chapter 3, verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And we're going to jump into chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What do the scriptures say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. Whoever to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one whom God credits credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. As a student pastor, I've been doing this for about eight to ten years, and I get the opportunity to walk with your students and, and, and partner with you as parents in the, life, in the journey of faith with your kids. And it's, and it's great. And one thing that I've, I've learned over these years and from my own limited experience as a parent is that parenting is terrifying. And if you are a kid, you just need to understand, you terrify your parents. It's just the reality of it. And before we even jump into this, I'm going to talk about parents and kids a lot. And I'm not just talking, I don't want to make this distinction every time I say it. Because this applies, the terrifying uh, relationships that we have uh, and, and the lost people in our lives. They could be coworkers, they could be uh, friends, they could be other family members, it could be your kids, your foster kids, it could be... Um, your grandkids, anybody. This, this applies to everybody, but I'm going to say uh, uh, parents and kids first. But the question that I get from almost every single parent who's, who's terrified and is, is telling me that they're terrified of their kids is how do, I, how do my kids not lose their faith? And for many of, of them, some of them say, how do my kids get a faith in the first place? And it's all boiling down to this question is, how do I not mess this thing up? Now, if you're looking for this time-tested answer from the expert youth pastor, you're going to be disappointed, okay? But I'm going to put a question back on you as parents. And that question is, what do you want? What do you want? Not for your kids, not for your friends or your coworkers, but what do you want for yourself, because if it is not a transformed heart by faith, it is going to be glaringly obvious to those who are watching. Paul, in our verses, is comparing two rival visions of the Christian faith. The first one is the moral life that believes in God. And it seems good and right, but there's a small distinction in here that, that I want to look, like, look at. The moral life that believes in God feels close to God only when they do something. 
You may say, oh, I, feel, I feel close to God when I have a good quiet time. Has to be a good one. Has to be quality. I feel close to God uh, when I have control over my tongue, over my anger. I feel closer to God when I serve, I give and pray. And these are all good things that do lead you closer to God. And God cares about your character and he cares about your morality. But when we are telling the world, when we're telling the next generation that the only way that you can feel closer to God is when you do something or how much sin you can avoid, we aren't sharing or portraying anything compelling or beautiful. We're just adding burdens. And those burdens lead to fear and anxiety and a weight that we can't carry. We're all going to inevitably fail if it depends on what we can do to grow closer to God. Second option has to be the better option. That's the transformed heart that believes God. Again, it's, it seems small, but it's a huge difference. Believing in God, that, that's the Christian that looks at the messiness of our world, the burdens of our world, the hopelessness of our world, and, he, and they believe that God and what he says is true, that his laws, his promises, his future are much better than anything that we can imagine. If we want the life that just believes in God, we are going to force morality. We're going to force it on ourselves. We're going to try to control the people in our realm. We're going to say, hey, listen, this is the way to do it. You got to do this, do this, do this, and that equals a relationship with God. And then when we do that, it's no wonder so many people are leaving the faith. Pastor and theologian A.J. Swoboda, he, t- he talks about presenting the gospel in that way. He says, he says, we're preaching the kingdom of God in an empire way, in a conquesting kind of way. And when we teach God and, and the kingdom of God and the grace and love of God in an empire way, it is no wonder that sin looks like freedom. The God or the good life that God is calling us to is an invitation, not an imposition. God is inviting us to end one kind of trust, the trust in all the things that we can do to please God into another trust. As what verse five says, trusting the God who justifies the ungodly. Paul quotes uh, David here in verse seven and eight. He says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. If you know anything about David, he was deeply flawed. Deeply, deeply flawed. But as N.T. Wright says, when reading these, these, these verses, he's saying, the joy of the Christian life is not that our sins are forgiven, but a much greater vision. It's that our sins are no longer held against us. And again, that seems like a small distinction, but the person who merely is like, oh, my sins are forgiven. Every time we sin is another opportunity to feel guilt and shame, more promises to make, more things we can do to make up for that sin. But when our sins are no longer counted against us, that is the mark of a transformed heart that can live in freedom because we know that God fully knows us in our messiness and in our sin, yet fully loves us. That's what a transformed 
transformed heart is. And with that transformed heart, that's not a one-time, one-and-done decision. It brings on a whole new reality into our lives. As we're going to see, the gospel brings this shocking reality to the people of God. And it's very unsettling for the moralist who just believes in God. Faith, believing in God, by definition, takes away all control. So let's look at uh, chapter 3, verse 29. Where is God, the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. In verses 9 through 12 of chapter 4, Paul is making this argument. He's saying, yes, circumcision and the law, that, that distinguished the people of God but it doesn't make you the people of God. And a lot of people felt good about it because they could control that. They have the law. They, can, they have circumcision. But he's making this argument. Abraham, the father of our faith, before being circumcised, 500 years before the law even came, he was justified by faith. So if it's about what you can do, then Abraham has no hope. Jumping back into 13 of chapter 4. It says, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it be, may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also those who have faith, the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Far too often... The world will look at the church and they will see that Christianity is just a means of control. And I've heard it a thousand times in a thousand different places that people who either are confronted with beautiful Christian truths or they are, they are, they've never grown up in the church or wherever, they, they say Christianity is for older people, for white people, for um, Americans, or they'll say it's for a homophobic, patriarchal, power-hungry system, but it is not for me. There's other complicating factors in this because they watch what the church says and what they do and they see pastors falling left and right. If you know anything about Ravi Zacharias, he was a spiritual giant when he was alive, but some things have come out that he was doing some horrific things behind the scenes. And he's not alone. Many people who have grown up in the church or at least hear about what the church teaches, they hear that there is no place for women in the story of God, so they reject it. Many people in, in purity culture have been told that the goal of the Christian life is to go to your marriage bed as a virgin, and that only then will you have a good marriage. And then they get married and they realize there's a lot more to marriage than that. In all these examples, this is a control of image. 
a control of power, a control of morality. And too often we're like, yeah, well, if we just show them the Bible and what God says, they'll listen. And I know people fail, but we'll show them. But we are increasingly finding a world that is completely unhinged from the truths of Scripture. And it's falling on deaf ears. And it seems hopeless. I feel hopeless sometimes seeing what's going on. But it is only hopeless to a person who wants control. And why would we want control when we have a God, as it says in verse 17, who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not? A couple weeks ago, um, our, uh, we have a junior-senior Bible study on uh, Sunday nights. And uh, we went to go see a baptism of one of our former students at a campus ministry at the U of M. And um, it was a really powerful experience. I wanted the students to see a campus ministry um, because I think it's one of the most important things students can do when they go to college. And um, this was a baptism service. They had 48 baptisms. And every single one of those 48 baptisms had a short little uh, testimony with that. So it was a very long service. And so as we were listening, one of the leaders that came uh, with me pointed out the fact that 90% of these testimonies started like this. I grew up in a Christian home, but I grew up in a Christian home, but my parents, they emphasized that the Christian, a Christian does not party, doesn't drink and party. So I didn't drink and party, but on the, on the other side, I was messing around with my girlfriend and, and lying and doing all these different things, but he wasn't partying. I grew up in a Christian home, and I felt good because I could, I, was, I could control a lot of aspects of my morality, and I could look down on other people because I felt like I was better than them. I grew up in a Christian home, but I was one person in church and another person at school. What we realized is every single one of these students had to come to a complete end of themselves before they could have an actual thriving relationship with God. And this is no knock on any of those parents. I know some of those parents that were a part of that baptism, they are wonderful parents who teach beautiful Christian truth to their kids. I did not, I grew, I'm the pastor's kid. I grew up in the church. I heard the gospel my whole life. The gospel was not life-grippingly real for me until I was 21 or 22 years old. How does that happen? And so we were, this leader who has a middle school and high school student was saying, what am I, like, what do I do? What do I, like, how can I make faith real for my kids? And this was a shock and, and wake-up call for me, too, because I, I looked at that and I, and I thought to myself, what do I need to do for my young kids? What do I need to make sure that I say and do in order for them to walk in to college or the next stage of life on fire for God? And I don't think I'm alone in feeling that way. But when we are known by our fear, by what we think we can teach in our regulations, the next generation is not going to see God no matter how much we preach it. And this speaks directly to the goal of Christianity and the gospel. And this is the terrifying reality that Christianity is completely by faith. Because the opposite is, 
we can, if we don't have faith, we are going to impose the gospel. We are going to impose morality. We are going to impose coming to church as the goal of our Christianity and of our lives. What we are saying is, you can control your, your faith. You can control what happens to you. You can control your Christianity and you can accomplish it on your own. But what Scripture tells us over and over and over again is that we are dead until Jesus makes us not. Dead people can't do anything. Jesus brings us to life. And this is the good news. This is the good news that takes pressure off. Takes it off us, for our friends, our coworkers, and our kids. Because God is making a whole new people, and it's not based on race, class, achievements, pedigree, but it is a brand new people of faith. So if we think about that for a second, ask this question to yourself. Is your Christianity built around fear? Around the God that raises dead people to life? And I get it. I'm not standing up here saying things that I don't struggle with already. This, is, this seems impossible. I, have, I see what your kids are up against. I see what they're hearing. I see what they're doing and saying, and it is terrifying. I have a kid who loves murdering worms. Who knows what he's going to turn into? It's terrifying. And as parents, it's a pendulum. Because in your home, you have to have rules. You have to teach them the beauty of God. You can't let them run wild and do whatever they want. And the other side is we can't just be like, you must believe this. You must do this. You must do that in order to be a Christian. We can't do that. So there has to be a middle ground. And it's the hardest one because that is faith. You can model it and show them love and all of these things, but you can't impose it and you can't let them run wild. It's a pendulum and it's hard. We need to realize how limited and how helpless our influence is because it's all about God and his power. If you're a Christian, you have no control. And the greatest gift that we can give a watching world is that faith equals helplessness. There's no amount of guardrails and rules that can overcome the God who raises people from the dead. Thankfully, we have an example to follow. Because this is confusing, and it's hard, and it's weird, and it's going to be uncomfortable. Because if we're going to have a transformed heart, that brings on a whole new reality. So we need to see what it looks like, and we're going to see that in verses 17 through 25. We're going to go back to verse 17. It says, as it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. 
This is why it was credited, credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were not just written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is what helplessness looks like. And if we look back at chapter one, we see what life is when you're like, hey, I'm going to do what feels good at the moment. I'm going to do what's good for me. I'm going to be me and I'm going to do what, I'm going to express myself in this way. And it leads to ruin every single time. If we look at the juxtaposition between verse or chapter one and chapter four, we see humans dishonor their, their bodies and they worship things that were created and that were not divine. But we see Abraham, he worshiped God and he found that uh, his body regained power even though he was 100 years old, way past the age of fathering children. We see where uh, in verse 125, where they uh, ignored God as their creator, Abraham did the opposite. He believed God as creator and life giver. We see in uh, 126 and 27 that people dishonored their bodies with sexual relationships. But Abraham and Sarah, through their trust in God's promises, are given power to conceive a child at a very old age. Humans didn't give God the glory he was due. Abraham gave God all the glory. And lastly, humans knew about God's power and they ignored it and they didn't worship him for what he is deserved. But Abraham recognized God's power and he trusted him to use it. Again, a Romans 1 person lives on their own strength. And their own strength is no strength at all. We see Abraham gives us a vision of going right on the gospel journey. And when we look at Abraham's life, there's not like any magic to it. We see God made promises. God did the work. God eventually accomplished those promises in Jesus. And what did Abraham do? He just followed and believed in God. Believed God. He's being held up as an example, not because of his morality. He messed up plenty of times, if you read through the story of Abraham. He's our example because he knew that he needed God. And we also need God. And what's incredible about Abraham's story, he was worshiping idols for most of his life until God called him out of that. He saw glimpses of God's promises being fulfilled, but we see that Jesus, we know that Jesus ultimately fulfilled the promises made to Abraham hundreds of years ago. He had conversations with God, but they were limited. We have the whole word of God at our fingertips at all times. And even more, we have the Holy Spirit, if you are a Christian, dwelling inside of you to empower you to do things you could never do without God. We have more than Abraham. We have more reasons to have faith than Abraham did. That's why he's our example. If you are not helpless, if you do not view yourself as helpless in absolutely every area of your life, your view of the Christian life will not last. You need God. 
This isn't just for the next generation. This is for everyone. We need God desperately. And some of us can say, yes, yeah, I know I need a Savior. But what relationships are we pursuing to control our image, to control our money with business relationships, to control our power? What if we had faith in relationships to love and serve people without expecting anything in return? What parts of your life are you trying to control to ignore God's calling on, our, on your life because it seems scary? This could be a habit, it could be an addiction, it could be something that keeps you in control in the moment, but actually is numbing the reality of what's going on in your life, or do you trust that God has a good and glorious future for you, even though things feel like they're falling apart? That's faith. How many of us, and I'm speaking to myself here too on many of these things, how many of us passively read our Bibles as uh, something to check off for the day? Or read it to figure something out instead of gripping on to God's word and his promises because they are the only things that lead to life. Our world, the lost people in our lives, our kids, they don't need a group of Christians that have all the answers, all the plans, all the control. They need a God who has it all together, has all the answers, and has all the plans. And a group of helpless people who follow him. I know a lot of you have lost people in your life. They may be in your home. And I want to challenge every one of us this week to not just rush to give answers, not just rush to, to, to get them to figure it out. I want everyone to invite yourselves into their lives. An invitation into somebody's life may mean that you get yelled at. And they, just start, and they just start being like, I, I just need to get this off my chest. Sometimes they actually want to look for an answer and hopefully you're ready to give that answer when it comes. But what people need is a helpless person that's walking through life, through their struggles, their doubts, and their pain in prayer, in patience, and in faith. Invite yourselves in people's lives. We don't don't just see Abraham as, as an example of helplessness. We also see Jesus, the king of the universe, as helplessly following the Father. On the night that he was betrayed, we see him going to the Father, fighting against his ability to do whatever he wants, and goes to his Father and said, in Matthew 26, 39, it says, going a little farther, He fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. If Jesus is helpless in that situation, how much more are we? And that's why we take the Lord's Supper every single week. We look back to that moment. Where Jesus, right before he was betrayed, he's with his disciples and he's showing them how to helplessly rely on God. And so that's why every single week 
we take this in remembrance of him, looking forward to the fact that his promises are true and that someday we will feast with him and enjoy life with God forever. And so take his body that was broken for you. And we take the juice remembering that his blood was shed for you. And every time we do this, remember we are a helpless people who needed Jesus to make us right with God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for giving us Jesus, for giving us a way out of our, our uh, attempts to take control. We didn't deserve it, but you gave it anyways because you want a relationship with us. Lord, I pray for every single person here who has lost people in their lives that they worry about and that are, they're terrified for. Help us to find beauty in the fact that we are helpless and that we get a God who has given us everything to know him and that he has a much more glorious plan in future than anything we could ever think of. Thank you for Jesus. In your name I pray, amen.